0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the book of Deuteronomy with a look at the beginning of Deuteronomy 17. We have one upcoming online workshop, or rather a micro-workshop, that we wanted to keep you aware of. For three Saturdays, one in October and a couple in November, Peter Lightheart will be leading a online workshop over Zoom on exercises in reading. At Theopolis, we strive to teach our students to read and teach Scripture in depth, and one method to achieve that is to teach Bible readers how to read literature well. For more information about this course and to register, there's a link in the show notes, or you can head to our website, theopolisinstitute.com, and head to the online courses tab or scroll to the bottom where we have our upcoming events. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lighthart, James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts, discussing Deuteronomy 17. Welcome to the Theophilus
1: Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is uh, in the background recording and will be editing and make everything available to you Thank you for listening. Uh, We are in the midst of a a, uh, series of studies in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, We're about halfway through the book, and uh, we're looking at the long section in Deuteronomy that is organized according to the 10 words, beginning in roughly chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, where the 10 commandments are given in a slightly altered form. Through chapter 26 or so, the book is organized in order by the 10 words. So there's a section that's the first commandment. There's a section that's the second commandment, third, fourth, and so on. And we're in the section of the of the book of Deuteronomy that deals with the fifth commandment. And in our, at least in our numbering of the commandments, this is the commandment, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And as many have pointed out, this, this is a fifth commandment section, but it doesn't really deal with parents. The uh, issues are not about Parent-child relations, but rather other kinds of authorities. And so we started last last time, I think maybe maybe two episodes ago, looking at and one episode ago, I'm sure, uh, looking at the end of chapter 16, where the Lord instruct or Moses instructs Israel to appoint judges and officers. Uh, then there's a section that deals with procedures for legal cases. Uh, there's a section that deals with the priests. There's a section that deals with the king. There's a section that deals with prophets. All of these are different forms of authorities their father figures in Israel. And as Ralph Smith pointed out when we had him as a guest a number of months ago, all of Deuteronomy is kind of under the heading of the fifth commandment. Yahweh is the father, and he gives instruction to his son Israel. And if his son Israel honors him by keeping covenant, obeying the commandments of God, then they will live long and prosper in the land the Lord is giving. That's the overarching theme of Deuteronomy. But then in Deuteronomy 16 through the end of chapter 18, uh, we have this focus on the kind of sub-parental authorities that the Lord appoints, and Israel is supposed to honor them also. They have to obey them. Obeying Yahweh means obeying those other authorities. I wanted to make a few comments. We'll get to this, I hope, eventually in this episode, but I want to make a few comments about disputes over the question of kingship in Israel. This is a disputed question, partly because the the Old Testament itself gives a kind of complex view of uh, whether kingship and monarchy is a good thing or a bad thing. When the monarchy actually begins in First Samuel, Samuel gives us lengthy warning about the, the custom that the king will, will follow, the way that he will behave, and it's uh, all to the detriment of Israel. He's going to confiscate land, he's going to confiscate people, he's going to take and take and take and take, and he's going to oppress the people uh, that's uh, the kind of king that Israel is going to get because they ask in unbelief. But then there are other places, as in Deuteronomy 17, where we have rules for kingship that are anticipating that Israel will eventually have a king. And that's the that's the aim all along. goes back all the way to Eden, where Adam is created, placed in the garden as a priest, but he's supposed to grow up to be a king. That's reiterated various times in the book of Genesis. Abraham has promised that kings will come from him At the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob blesses the tribe of Judah as the future royal tribe. A scepter will not depart from Judah. So there's this anticipation all the way through the Pentateuch that there will be a king in Israel, a human king, and that gets realized finally with Saul and then particularly with the Davidic dynasty. Um, But I think that there's there's an underlying uh, theme of kingship in the Pentateuch that uh, goes beyond what I've just enumerated, and that is about the development or the unfolding revelation of Yahweh's kingship. That's part of the point of dispute when people debate about monarchy in the Old Testament. Is Israel supposed to be ruled directly by Yahweh as their king, or are they allowed to have human kings? I think they're allowed to have human kings, but Yahweh remains the high king. And the Pentateuch sets up uh, the development of human kingship by emphasizing the kingship of Yahweh. Uh, And that's evident in the Exodus, the first time the Bible says that Yah reigns and uses the verb moloch, which is the verb for for kingship, for kingly reigning, is at the end of Exodus fifteen, the song of Moses, the song of the sea. Yah reigns, uh, and that's evident in the fact that he's delivered them from Egypt, he's conquered Egypt, he's decimated Egypt. He continues to show that he's king by leading them through the wilderness, by providing for them in the wilderness. He comes to Sinai and he gives them laws and a covenant, as kings do. He instructs them to build a royal tent where he's going to be enthroned and that royal tent is going to follow them and is going to be carried from place to place as they go through the wilderness and also as they enter the land. Israel pays homage to Yahweh at his at his royal tent. So that's what the offerings are about. And then the conquest is also a kind of royal, a manifestation of Yahweh's royal power. He conquers the land and then distributes it to his vassals, to his people. In some sense, he liberates at least some of the Canaanites from oppression. He liberates Rahab from the oppression of the king of Jericho, and he liberates the Gibeonites who want to ally with Joshua. And then the it's not, not part of the Pentateuch anymore, but the Heptateuch, or the seven the first seven books of the Bible, end with this large-scale rejection of Yahweh's kingship. You have this buildup through the Pentateuch, Yahweh's king, by delivering Israel, by leading them through the wilderness, by bringing them to the land, by distributing the land. But once they get into the land, they reject him as king, and that's the story of the book of Judges. There is no king in Israel means that they don't acknowledge Yahweh as king. So in all of that uh, revelation of Yahweh's kingship, we have a model of what true kingship is supposed to be. So before there's ever a human king in Israel, Yahweh has shown Israel what it means to be a king. Uh, it means rescue from enemies. It means provision. It means uh, laws, good laws, covenants. It means uh, conquest and distribution of land. And when, when we get to the Davidic dynasty, and particularly the figure of David, David exhibits those qualities. He, he is a Yahweh-like king. He's a king after Yahweh's own heart. And I think you can find most of the positive aspects of David's reign are manifesting or reflecting that divine kingship that was developed in the Pentateuch. So we're going to we're gonna look at that uh, passage about kingship uh, a little bit later in the podcast. But I think that's the overall setup in the Pentateuch is that Yahweh is king, but he's He's establishing a pattern, and he's modeling what kingship is should look like. So, with so the when Israel does have a king, they have a king uh, after Yahweh's own heart. Chapter seventeen doesn't begin with kingship; it ends with kingship. But the the first chunk of chapter seventeen is something of a repetition of a case that was given back in chapter thirteen. Uh, in chapter thirteen, there's a uh, there's a law concerning seduction to idolatry. Several different cases of People who try to turn Israel away from worshiping Yahweh to worship other gods, uh, and those false uh, those those who encourage uh, worship of idols are to be put to death. Uh, in this case, verses two through seven of chapter seventeen, uh, it's not seduction to idolatry, but uh, but idolatry itself that's being punished. It's also punished with death. And uh, I think uh, uh, the commentator commentators that I looked at I think rightly emphasize. This isn't everything that's going on in the passage, but they rightly emphasize the importance of the procedural features of this passage. There's certain ways that Israel's is supposed to go about investigating and judging uh, somebody who's guilty of idolatry. They can't just go off and create a mob and do have have lynch mobs that are that are stoning or stoning mobs that uh, that stone a suspected idolaters. There has to be an investigation. There has to be proof,
2: and that seems to be the connection between verses two. Through 7 and 8 through 13, where they might seem like they're dealing with different, different uh, things, different uh, social kinds of uh, uh, problems, but it's pretty much the same. So in verse 2, if there's found among you within any of your gates, ESV says towns, but the word's gates, and that gates is repeated in verse 5. So this is all about judicial process. And then in verse 8, if any case arises, requiring decisions between blood and blood literally um or in the translation one kind of homicide another but I think that probably is a little too specific especially coming after verses two through seven anything that has to do with uh with blood with maybe capital crimes um uh there's there's this connection here like you said Peter with uh, process with judicial process. One thing that's striking to me, and, and since you started off talking about kingship, not to sound too much like an American, but uh, it's surprising here that there's this balance of power. There's this uh, uh, division of power here. Uh, we You've got priests, you've got a judge who is in office, but it doesn't appear like that's the king. Um, so there's a judicial kind of uh institution or institutions there's a lot of a lot of it has to do with local but then this there's, there's this centralized kind of judge who you can appeal to uh, but that's not the king the king has some, something of a different function we'll talk about that when we get there um so the uh, <clears throat> the distribution of power of responsibility um in this passage is to me it's and it's a lot different, I believe, uh, than uh, ancient Near Eastern kinds of uh, social constructs, where the king is pretty much has absolute power. Here, you have uh, priests and judges and other sorts of of um, processes, other sorts of people involved in these uh,
3: judicial processes. If yeah, that idea of a division of authorities is Something I've been thinking about a bit with regards to this chapter, I'm um, taking us back a bit now into the end of last chapter, but there seems to be this thread of um, not having conflicts of interest, Um, kind of just running through all of these chapters. Um, Where are we? Uh, Verse 19 of the last chapter says, you you shall not twist or, or, you know, uh, bend, perhaps you you shall not bend, justice and then in verse 20 you get this kind of interesting phrase tzedek tzedek tirdof Uh, it says like uh, i have this translated as justice and only justice you you shall pursue so there's to be this kind of undivided and untainted pursuit of justice and and that principle seems to flow on through uh, kind of into this um chapter so I suggested earlier that to, I think to plant an Asherah beside the Lord's altar was to introduce this sort of divided loyalty into the hearts of the people to give them two gods to please. And then um, to offer sacrifice in verse 1 now of chapter 17, to offer a blemished sacrifice is the service of of, uh, of mammon really, isn't it, to, um, rather than offer something that's going to be costly, um, it, it's to kind of just fob the Lord off with something that's a bit cheaper, you know, so th- there's this uh, aspect of, of um, yeah, of just having one centre of uh, authority and, and pursuing it wholeheartedly that seems to be um, uh, central here. And and seems to me that, that could explain a lot of the division of, judgment of cases up between priests and judges and, and possibly kings will will get there later. But th- that seems to be going on. Even on that sort of division of powers, I think it's worth paying attention
4: to the degree to which the law and upholding the law is a communal responsibility that every single party within Israel is responsible for upholding the law in their area of um, responsibility and teaching the law to others, um, instructing and casting judgment according to the law. And there's a sense or not as the responsibility of parties associated with the government, with individuals just being law abiding or law breakers. Every single person has some degree of responsibility for upholding the order of the law and teaching it and passing it on. And so this standard, even in the very way that it's taught, is one that can't just be um, displaced from the responsibility of the people to their leaders. It's something that conscripts every single party. Every single one of the people of Israel needs to be acquainted with, um, needs to be seeking to uphold and to maintain and to extend the principles of the law within their lives and the lives of their family. And comparing this to other law codes, I think we can see that in the way that it's addressed. It's not just something that is um, a law code written for leaders and authorities. This is a law code that the whole people need to meditate upon and be reminded of and chew over and um, to ruminate upon. Yeah, that's a great point, and I think that, that fits with the way that uh, this fifth
1: fifth word section of Deuteronomy is framed. Uh, the fifth word itself, "On your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land." Uh, the focus is on the obedience of subordinates to superiors. Uh, subordinates have to obey those who are in authority over them, uh, and that's reiterated here in this section of Deuteronomy a number of times. But there's a lot of emphasis on the obligation of those who are in authority toward those who are under them. Even in even in this one, uh, the case that we're looking at in chapter 17, uh, versus the two through seven, the the case of the idolater. A lot of the law, those who are being punished. Obviously, this is a law about a, a punishment for idolatry, purging the evil from among you. But a lot of the details here have to do with how one proceeds in as an authority or as a member of Israel. In uh, pursuing or prosecuting to make sure this evil gets purged, so there's there are obligations on both sides. There's kind of reciprocity that's going on. on. Uh, I also want to highlight uh, again back to chapter 16, the uh, the part that uh, James was highlighting: don't distort justice, don't be partial, do not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise, perverts the words of the righteous. Uh, I came across a uh, an essay this week working on this uh, this section uh, that argued that. That prohibition of bribery is unusual, if not unique in the ancient Near East. Uh, bribery was part of the way judicial systems worked. Judicial systems worked, they were framed by this kind of gift and counter gift system. If you gave a gift to uh, somebody who was, who was a, a, an authority who could hear your suit, he was obligated to hear your suit. Uh, the, the gift placed him under obligation, placed a debt on him to do that. And in turn, if a if an authority, a judge, passed judgment in your favor, then he expected to have some kind of reciprocity, some kind of counter gift in the future. So the essay cited some uh, some examples, some ancient texts where people are complaining. You know, I I brought three lambs to this guy, and he wouldn't hear my case, even though I brought three lambs, as if there was a moral lapse on the part of the judge because he didn't accept the bribe. So that. Yeah, the, the 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 procedures that are here are they become second nature to us, you know. Not accepting bribes is just—I mean, it seems so obvious that everybody would accept that, but that's just not the case in the ancient world. Certainly not the case today either. Bribery is rampant in all kinds of places around the world, and surely in the United States as well, in in England. But um, those kind of procedural issues stand out, and the procedural issues are of the substance of justice in in the law. Just to highlight one other of those uh, procedural principles, verse six, this is one that's cited in the New Testament uh, and several times in the Torah. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So there needs to be a a plurality of witnesses. Um, uh, Jim Jordan has connected this to kind of a a Trinitarian pattern where the father's... uh, the father is revealed by the double witness of the son and the spirit and so there's a a double or two or three witness uh, there's a two witness uh, structure that's built into you know built into things because of the way that uh, because of who who made all things you know the triune god made all things uh, and it's uh, there's a kind of a literary pattern sometimes where you have dying you shall die that kind of doubling within the literary w- it, doubling of verbs is a kind of double witness when you take an oath you often double the words as a a kind of double witness to the truth of what you're saying. Uh, Verse six actually is full of this kind of double. uh, The word witness appears three times in the chapter. Uh, Die appears uh, two or three times. I think the word mouth, yeah, that's the word. The word translated as evidence, the word mouth, that appears twice. So verse six itself kind of uh, structurally and literarily manifests the double, triple witness idea uh, that is actually
3: prescribing there there seems to be going on here um some kind of um uh kind of unifying theme to my mind at least to do with the um the authority of the word so I mean obviously ultimately it's going to end with the king and he has to write out the law and he's to be subject to that law so we have kind of God's word as supreme but then Nested under this, I mean, there are just various words that become binding on people. So, I mean, if kind of in the initial case, people refer um, a, a difficult case to judges, what they're told then has to be um, carried out. And it's it's suggested in verse eight that that decree comes from a place of authority. They go up and arise um, and go to the place that the Lord God. Um, will choose and then verse 10 you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the lord will choose and you you very often in the um in the chapter get this phrase um was it alpe isn't it like literally by by word or by by mouth or something and it seems to me that that is what witnesses are doing here they are kind of um acquiring by testifying something of the authority of of the word because they are then testifying and as a result of it judgment is made and then the people kind of follow after their lead in a sense the the witness sort of stone someone to death and then afterwards the people do um likewise and it it just sort of seems to me that throughout the chapter you've then got this supreme word god's word and then various kind of binding words that are um nested beneath it in some way yeah and a corollary to that is the emphasis throughout this section
1: on hearing uh in the fifth word section which begins in chapter 16 verse 18 and ends in 1822 uh the verb shama uh, is used seven times so uh, there's a yeah emphasis on word and mouth it'll carry over into chapter 18 because the true prophet is one that has Uh, the Lord's words in his mouth. And those authoritative words that are spoken by Yahweh's appointed officers must be heard, that is, must be received and obeyed. I had a question, uh, and I'll propose an answer to the question and uh, see if you you buy this. This law about uh, idolatry repeats uh, three times the phrase, a man or a woman. Verse 2, If there's found in your midst in any of your towns, which Yahweh your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of Yahweh your God by transgressing the covenant and worshiping other gods. So it's a man or a woman. So uh, you could say there's a principle of equality. Men and women are both under the law. Men and women are both judged by the law. Uh, But then we get down further on and we have the same phrase repeated in verse 5. Then you should bring out that man or that woman who's done this evil deed to your gates that is the man or the woman and you shall stone them to death and you could you could see maybe a reason why that would be repeated there particularly in the last part whether it's a man or a woman you have they have to be stoned to death maybe that's trying to overcome some kind of natural disinclination to stone a woman but a woman who's uh, committed idolatry also has to be put to death but the 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 repetition of that phrase Three times, and uh, it seems not entirely necessarily in verse five to have that repeated. Maybe wonder if there's some some something else going on. It you know um, immediately put me puts me in mind of uh, of uh, the Edenic situation: a man or a woman in the garden who transgressed the covenant, who listen to they don't worship the serpent, but they listen to the serpent, uh, and they do something the Lord has not commanded. They do something the Lord has explicitly prohibited. Uh, they're not stoned, but they're cast out of the garden. Which led me to the to the thought that what the gatekeepers are doing, those who are in the gates of the c- cities and towns, uh, is kind of a cherubic role. The cherubim are placed at the at the uh, gate of the garden after Adam and Eve were expelled um, to prevent access to prevent re-entrance. Those who are at the gates of the towns in Israel, those judges who are at the gates, exclude and oversee the execution of those who have committed capital crimes. And they are put in that gatekeeping position that the cherubim have in uh, in Genesis three. So, I mean, you could you could make a a shortcut to this argument to say that uh, we have human beings at the gates who are making decisions about who's who goes in and who goes out. That's why judges are placed at the gate, set at the gates, so they can uh, discriminate between who's allowed into the city and who has to be expelled. Uh, And just in that fact, they're playing kind of a cherubic role. Uh, but when you have this repetition of man or woman, it seems like you're reinforcing that Edenic setting. And uh, perhaps you have what uh, seems to be an overall trajectory of the Bible. Adam is placed as the guardian of the garden. He fails, he is expelled. Cherubim are placed at the gate of the garden. But eventually, human beings are going to be pla- placed at the gate. Human beings are going to judge angels, much less other human beings. And in Israel's system, we have human beings beginning to take on that cherubic guardian role. Plausible? Plausible to me. You guys are an easy sell, I'll tell you. I could say almost anything.
3: <laughs> I I have what might be a, a related question, which um I guess has more to do with the uh, chronology if 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 there is an intended chronology here. So I mean you have um where are you are we uh verse nine. So a a difficult case, it's brought to the Levitical priests um, and to the judge. Um, and then later on, we read about a king. Now, I mean, I, I was just trying to think of who in Scripture we actually read about doing these judging functions and sort of deciding between one person and another in terms of uh, justice. I mean, we get Phinehas consulted um, about various things like at the tail end of uh, Joshua and effectively the start of Judges chronologically. Um, We've got Deborah, who is a um, a prophet and a judge. Um, You know, the various people come up to her um, for judgment. I can't remember if it says to seek judgment or not, but she seems to have that kind of role, especially because she's a, prophet as well and then um Kings you know people come to David and to Solomon's um court to settle um disputes and it feels to me that you could read that as a um an over stretching of a king's office because it's not it's sort of explicitly said here that the king will sort of take over that function from the priests or the judges or it seems that you could, Read that in terms of we well, could read the passage of Judges 17 in terms of a chronological development, um, and then sort of say that that's mirrored in, in the um narrative itself. So, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be keen to know what you make of all that.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's plausible. I'm uh, it's not clear to me entirely whether the priests and judges that are at the central place are a kind of court of appeal which is one possibility or whether they are uh, kind of consultants to the local judges. And uh, this goes back to Jess's point that you have a diversification of, or distribution of power and authority. You have local judges, but then you have a central, some kind of central judicial consultation, at least it does say that we'll declare the verdict in the case. So I get that verse nine. So I guess that's means that they are uh, functioning as basically a court of appeal. And I, I I took your point to be James that uh, the king would kind of take that role. That seems certainly that's certainly the case with, with Solomon, and particularly when you have Solomon and his court of judgment built right in the vicinity of the temple. You have the the royal palace and its adjoining buildings is part of the same big complex as the temple. So if you go to Jerusalem, then you're going to the place where the priests are there to uh, consult with or to pass judgment. And right next door is the King's Hall of Judgment. So, uh, it, if that's if that's the thrust of what you're you're asking, then I would I think that's right.
4: I wonder how this would fit then with the broader context of the Exodus, where in chapter eighteen you have of the Book of Exodus, you have Jethro's counsel to Moses to establish a different sort of political structure beneath Moses to spread some of the burden. This then seemed to be working almost in the other direction, not necessarily contrary to it, but ensuring that there is a Moses-type figure as a central figure of judgment, so that even when there is this larger network of judges, priests and judges who will be hearing cases, there will be this greater Court of Appeal. You might also think of um, the character of Absalom and the way that he exploits failures of judgment under the regime of David as uh, um for his rebellion
2: there doesn't seem to be any supernatural if we could use that word direction here this seems to be entirely within the the power the discernment of the judge and the priest when these cases that are too difficult for local Um, elders or judges to priests to deal with it It comes to the place where Yahweh or God will choose uh, and presumably that's where the tabernacle is at this point but we don't have any Urim and Thummim we don't have any explicit consultation with the Lord and waiting for some sort of again supernatural or or, um, extraordinary kind of direction this is all. Um, this is all given to, and maybe this relates to what uh, Peter was saying earlier. This is all given to human priests and judges to use their wisdom and discernment to come to a um, a decision, to come to a verdict, and then from verses eleven on, it seems there's this ballast here at the end, this emphasis. Wow. Whatever decision they come to, and it's a plural here, they, it's not just the judge. Whatever they pronounce to you, you shall do. And you can't turn aside from it. You can't uh, act presumptuously and not obey. Um, And then there's a reference to the priest who stands to minister before Yahweh. So apparently the high priest maybe is involved in this. But the the fascinating thing here is that uh, these are human judgments. And maybe this just relates to we we have this controversy in uh, well probably in every human culture but especially these days in modern culture about uh, about capital punishment about the death penalty and 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 um, how you know sometimes judges and courts and juries get it wrong uh, so if if they can if it's possible they can get it wrong then they, we should never. Uh, utter a verdict, uh, or uh, uh, especially a verdict with regard to capital punishment. Um, but here it seems like, um, well, that seems like it. It is a fact that uh, who, w- whatever litigants here are, are whatever uh, are, are are suing for justice or whatever is going on here, or or even if it it is about capital punishment, blood for blood, verse eight. You have to submit to what the human judges uh, decree, um, and that's that's. it might be a little bit surprising, I think, to some people, especially given that there doesn't appear to be any kind of supernatural influence involved.
1: Yeah, and you have that reinforced by the phrase at the end of verse 11, you shall not turn aside from the word which they clear, declare to you to the right or to the left. And that same phrase is used right at the end of the chapter talking about the king he keeps the law before him so that his heart is not lifted up and he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left in that case it's talking about the book of the law and uh, the king is not supposed to deviate from that in the previous case in verse 11 it's talking about the verdict that's declared by the uh, by the judge or by the by the priest uh, but that is taken as as you say kind of Divine, uh, the divine word, the divine judgment on these things. I guess it's possible to read verse 9, maybe, it would be a stretch, come to the Levitical priest of the judge, and you shall inquire, and they will declare to you the verdict in the case, that you could load up inquire with kind of a consultation of the urim and thummim. It, it's a verb that would be used in that context, but that would be that would be a stretch, and the there's no explicit claim, as you said, Jeff, there's no explicit indication that that's how the priests make these judgments, and I think that just a, a word about priests being involved in these kinds of things. Uh, the, the wording of, um, of verse eight is, uh, I think, significant uh, for thinking about how how priests uh, how priests relate. Jeff, as you said, it's blood or blood, mishpot or mishpot, judgment or judgment. I think is the next phrase, and then stroke or stroke is the third one. It's translated as assault in my Bible, but uh, it probably does refer to uh, physical assault. but um, blood and blood, stroke, and stroke are terms that are within the realm of priestly concern coming out of Leviticus. Obviously, uh, priests are the ones who manipulate blood at the at the tabernacle. The word for stroke is the same word that's used uh, several dozen times in Leviticus 13 and 14 to describe skin disease. And judges are uh, making judgments and assessments, Constantly about skin disease, there, there are very refined judgments that they have to make about certain kinds of outbreaks on the skin, whether these are disqualifying outbreaks or whether they uh, whether they um, if it's just a scab or if it's not spreading. There's very very detailed rules about what how the how the priest should pass judgments. So the passing judgment in that uh, that liturgical context that's kind of the cent- one of the central themes of or the central tasks of priestess, of priests is to distinguish clean and unclean and holy and holy and common and then this seems to be just kind of an expansion of that so their concern with blood is now expanded to include blood that shed their concern with strokes now strokes that uh, involve skin disease now expands to concern strokes that are imposed by another by another person but um there's there's this kind of continuity too between what the priests do in the sanctuary and the discriminations and judgments they make in the sanctuary and the judgments they make in this more uh, civil context.
2: We might want to reflect on, on that, especially in pre-modern times, the participation of uh, the clergy of church officials of pastors and priests in the civil, in these civil matters, in these, um, in these cases, in these court cases. Um, it kind of goes all the way back to even Roman times where Augustine is actually as a bishop hearing cases, civil cases in his district. And then you have, of course, all through the Middle Ages and up into the Reformation, the church participates in one way or another uh, in making some of these decisions about uh, you know, uh, all sorts of cases. And we've, we've kind of lost that. Now we've got this undue unfortunate separation of church and state, which means that there's no consultation, there's no advising, there's no help, um, given to civil authorities when it comes to these matters. It would certainly make for a much more balanced and uh balanced kind of approach. If we were to have, um, church and pastors participate in these according to their according to their ability and according to their place i mean you, you, we're not I'm not talking about some kind of a ecclesi- ecclesiastical uh, dominance but a, a, a partnership a a companionship uh that leads to you know good decisions
3: yeah peter i've been thinking about this continuity between the work of the um priest and the uh the division between clean and unclean and and the division spoken about here as as well. It's, um, uh, where are we? Just trying to find the wording of of verse eight. So between blood and and blood, it's sort of a repeated Hebrew term, isn't it? Dam le dam or din le din, nega le nega and and, and so on. And it it very much reminds me of the um, wording of, is it the end of 1 Kings three where Solomon has to um judge between the two women and there the way the case is recorded it's it's very confusing to read I mean in, in part just because um the it's just the one woman and the other woman and they're both just referred to as as zoats like in in the text and it, it's very hard to um it, it's sort of a deliberately confusing account and it seems then that the essence of justice has to do with that, um, with kind of being able to make those very finely grained um, distinctions between things and being able to d- discern accurately between things which look um, very similar. You could think about the statement of the word of God in Hebrews, couldn't we, to divide between um, soul and, and spirit, you know, to to make those fine-grained distinctions.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's a good that's a good analogy. The story of and Solomon's proposal to cut the baby is actually what kind of divides the women. He separates and discriminates between the women by proposing dividing the baby. I want to get back to Jess' comment too. That I, I think uh, I ex- agree with you entirely. Just as a historical source, I mean, obviously through the Middle Ages, you have uh, a close cooperation between. Civil and religious authorities, between ecclesial authorities and civil authorities, and uh, ecclesial officers, um, bishops and cardinals that are in high positions within various uh, within the within the royal court. That leads to all kinds of corruption, as everybody knows. But uh, there's also there's also the potential and the actuality of the presence of that that representative of the church providing some uh, break on. Uh, royal passion and anger and and uh, advising from scripture and theology about how kings should conduct themselves. I was thinking of uh, Harold Berman's book on the uh, law and revolution, uh, where he describes the formation of law codes in the West as basically coming out of uh, the church. The church is the first, Ken law is the first law code that's developed in the Western world. Uh, and it's coming out of, partly just out of doing church business, but it's because the church is so involved in managing and ruling and making judgments about social life, even though they don't have civil authority uh, per se, but they still have uh, they're involved in making those kind of judgments. They have developed this body of body of law that becomes a model for uh, law codes throughout the Western world. I think one of the things that that does, the presence of the church in in this kind of judicial setting, one of the things that it does is give a I'll use this and I'm not too particularly fond of this term but it 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 works here it gives a kind of transcendent perspective on the judicial process uh, and without that it's very easy for uh judgments to become pragmatic uh become instrumental you you uh, have to enforce thus and such because we need to keep the peace or we need to uh, uh we need to have... We have some instrumental uh, goal that we're trying to achieve, and so we uh, we pass judgments and pass verdicts based on those those goals that we're trying to achieve. And the idea that uh, the the justice of a society should somehow mirror heavenly justice or anticipate heavenly justice gets lost. And just having the church having a presence in the judicial system provides that kind of that kind of transcendent marker or uh, touchstone for for judicial
4: process. And beyond that, there's also the recognition of the standing of the community as a whole before the Lord, that evil needs to be purged from the midst. And so the administration of justice is not merely about um, deterrence. It's not merely about the ability to remove some dangerous person from the society and from um, free operation within it. Um, it's not merely about vengeance, there's a sense that the whole community needs to maintain a moral status, and that moral status is before the Lord, principally, and of course we get that most prominently in places like First Corinthians 5, the leaven that leavens the whole lump, and the importance of purging out the evil person that takes these sorts of texts and applies it to the life of the church, but throughout numbers and deuteronomy there's very clearly a sense that the community as a whole has a moral status that needs to be maintained and where that is neglected the whole society comes under divine judgment not merely um the person who has committed a crime but those who have failed to execute judgment concerning such wrongs
3: so a question on kind of the role of the witness so um The hand, verse seven, the hand of the witnesses um, is going to be first against him, basically, to put him to death. That strikes me as something interesting. I mean, we had the case of the um, idolater, effectively, um, in a previous chapter, didn't we? And the mother and the father to uh, throw the first stone there. So, in effect, the people who have responsibility um, for their son and would have every reason not to want to find him guilty you know th- they are to cast the first stone and you can you can see a, a point to that the hand of the witness here kind of intrigues me in, in that there isn't that same sense of authority and you know it, it's plausible that a witness could be a false witness and so uh, you, yeah I'm, I'm kind of wondering then why why have them be the first what what's going on there exactly
1: well I think one common suggestion is that uh, it it um, imposes a seriousness on the witnesses' role you have to be you have to be willing to back up your testimony uh, you can't throw out accusations and then step away uh, you can't uh, and and let kind of let the let the system take over and you're just watching it happen but you have to be personally involved and personally invested so that would that's that's one observation i found in some of the commentaries did you have another suggestion james
3: no i i didn't I, I i guess i guess we have got as the um backstop here haven't we that this has been brought to some sort of um central authority and it's it's been made quite clear hasn't it where are we um yeah, verse four. you should inquire um diligently and if it is established you know with with certainty so i i guess there is a yeah a fail safe um i had a general comment and and this is now on a a separate matter but there is clearly here a uh hierarchy you know things are referred up and it reminds me of the um text which alistair mentioned from exodus um 18 where um moses is to seek out you know able men who fear the Lord, et cetera. So men who will have a, um, a pursuit of justice and they're to be appointed over tens, fifties, hundreds, etc. So there is this hierarchical system. Um, but in, importantly, I guess, the, the default is that you sort it out among equals, if, if you like, you sort it out at the ground level. And if that proves to be problematic, then you refer it up a level if you like. And presumably, if they can't decide, it's referred up another level. Um, so there is a hierarchy, but it, it sort of somehow operates from the ground up rather than the top down, which strikes me as like a, a, an important distinction.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, uh, uh, that uh, it's a, a series of appeals courts rather than decrees coming from the center and uh, the local the local judges having to conform to the decrees. Uh, Count Carmichael, uh, who's a kind of an eccentric Old Testament commentator uh, in his book on the laws of Deuteronomy points out the analogy between the, the kind of dual settings for judgment. That is the local setting of the gates of the town versus the central place that the Lord chooses. There's these two, there are these two locations. He points out analogy between that and the duality of slaughter and sacrifice which is introduced back in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy. In the wilderness, as we've discussed before, every time you wanted to have meat, you would take the animal to the tabernacle and you'd slaughtered as, as a peace offering. All butchering was sacred butchering in the wilderness. Once you get into the land, you have this division between the sacred butchering that takes place at the tabernacle and eventually the temple uh, and the uh, profane butchering that takes place at the city gates. So um, you have in both... The Deuteronomy 12, which talks about the the uh, slaughter of meat, slaughter of animals for meat. Uh, and here you have this duality between the gates of the city and the and the central place. I find that really enticing and suggestive, but I'm not sure what to do with it. I, it does feel like there's probably some analogy there beyond just the fact that you have gates and place mentioned in both passages. I mean, one one analogy would be there's death dealing in both cases. You have death dealing at the sanctuary in sacrifice, but now you have, once you get in the land, you have death dealing that's permitted uh, in your local areas to death dealing to animals. With this ju- these judicial processes, you have death dealing that takes place at the local gates. Um, but now you're going to have this central place uh, where uh, you also have these uh, verdicts announced that are going to be a word of death to somebody who's guilty. I think an, another thing that uh, is worth noting in verse 11, the verdict is the word that's announced by the priest or the judge. Uh, and verse 11 goes on to say, according to the terms of the law, according to the mouth of the law, which they teach you, according to the word that they announced to you, you shall do. So it's an announcement of a of a, of a, uh, of a word The mouth of a word—it's the verdict that's being passed, but that verdict has a teaching function. Israel is supposed to learn from decisions that are made. We've seen before that Israel is supposed to learn and fear when they see what happens to idolaters or those who seduce to idolatry. Uh, They're supposed to learn the lesson and take that as a as a warning not to go after other gods. Uh, But uh, verse eleven suggests that there's this larger broader teaching function to the law, uh, properly decided verdicts, uh, just laws uh, teach a way of life to a community. That's It's not just for the order of a community, but there's a kind of pedagogical
4: dimension to the law. On that front, it might be interesting to reflect upon the cases that come up at certain points in Israel's history. Things like the question of what do you do with the daughters of Zelophehad? or what do you do with this person who's been caught in some act of blasphemy or um, breaking the Sabbath by picking up sticks? There is a sense of an occasion requiring an act of judgment, and out of that act of judgment arises a case law that then um, can be applied in the future. And the case law character of... um, Those sorts of events and certain parts of Deuteronomy as well, clearly presents us with the act of judgment as a sort of historical disclosure through judgment concerning specific events and the way in which there's a cumulative unveiling of principles of justice through these specific acts of judgment that often involve appealing up to the Lord to give clarity to a particular situation. And then with that clarity, lower courts will be able to apply the same principle in the future.
2: Peter, your comments on verse 11 reminded me of what you did earlier by connecting the end of verse 11 with verse 20 in the king. And so that your, your Israelite would have to listen to the word that was taught them and do it. The king here, especially the second part of the law concerning the king, seems to be presented here as a true Israelite, an exemplary Israelite, and he has to write for himself in a book a copy of the law, and it's approved by Levitical priests. By the way, that's fascinating comment right there. He, he writes for himself a book of the copy of the law uh, approved by or literally before the the Levitical priests. Levitical priests seem to have a scribal function in Israel. People always wonder where that is. Where does that come from? Why, how do we know that Levitical priests were involved with uh, copying the law and, and preserving the law and guarding the, the written copies of the law? Well, that, here it is right there. But what happens is the king uh, has to read it, has to learn to fear Yahweh his God by keeping the law and doing it. And that he, he's not, he can't be any different. He's not he's not above his brothers. He uh, he can't be puffed up and lifted up above his brothers. He's not uh, a different kind of, of, of Israelite. He's like them. And so he can't turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left. Uh, and then he's given this promise, which every Israelite also has given, that he could live long in the kingdom, he and his children. Um, so the whole thing here with regard to the king is that he is this exemplary israelite uh and so if the king acts in with respect to yahweh fearing him and obeying him and and heeding his word heeding the pronouncements that yahweh's made that will then be an example for every israelite uh in these court situations but also of course all through their lives um and uh, that that kind of that kind of juxtaposition of the ordinary Israelite and how he responds to the priests and the judges decisions, and the king and how he responds to Yahweh's uh, judgments and decisions. There's a connection there.
1: I think uh, Deuteronomy is laying out uh, procedures, principles that apply universally. This is, law that's given to Israel, instruction that's given to Israel. Uh, But Israel does play the role of a model nation. It does so in the ancient world. That's part of what Moses says in Deuteronomy itself. Uh, And uh, uh, the church has always recognized a certain degree of uh, general equity, at least as the Westminster Confession puts it, general equity in the way that uh, the uh, judicial laws of the Old Testament uh, lay out principles of justice and procedures of justice and so on. So I, um, there are there are things here that every nation should adhere to, rules about uh, what counts as evidence, how much evidence do you need to convict somebody, uh, what has to happen before somebody is convicted, uh, the, the idea of having a court of appeal where you can have uh, specialized expert scrutiny. People are specialists in the law that can scrutinize a case. So all that I think is has a lot of a lot of uh, relevance to thinking about uh, political systems and civil law and uh, legislation and so on. But I think I want to uh, I want to bring it to uh, something that's much more in in a sense much more ready to hand in the present time when we start our studies in Deuteronomy. One of the things we said about the purpose was to look at Deuteronomy as a source not just for thinking about law, civil law and civil rule, but for thinking about the church. Israel is the people of God, the new covenant equivalent is the church, and Deuteronomy's instructions apply primarily in the church. Uh, And I think that's what Jeff said about Augustine, I think is relevant here. Augustine spent a lot of his time as a bishop hearing cases. People People would bring disputes before him and he would have to pass judgment. He, he expresses his weariness with that process quite a bit in his letters. Uh, but the, the church took that responsibility and took that responsibility not only for its own members, but uh, as uh, judicial processes. And as the as Roman rule broke down in various parts of the empire, the church began to offer those kinds of judicial court services to people who were outside outside the church. And I think that those 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 kind of principles that we have laid out here can be and have been embodied in church constitutions i mean there are rules about how many witnesses does it take to bring a charge against a pastor for example that paul paul talks about two or three witnesses in the new testament in precisely that context there are in presbyterianism at least there's this kind of system of courts of appeal you you'll be tried at the local presbytery at local church level but then you can take it to the presbytery and then you can take it to a higher level and there's a uh, is a final there's a final kind of Supreme Court that can make a final judgment. So a lot of the principles here can be embodied in church practice, even if we don't have any realistic possibility of having them embodied in civil practice. I don't want to be too gloomy about civil practice because uh, so much of this uh, so much of the Torah has just become kind of second nature to Western political systems. Again, as I said earlier in the early in this episode,, uh, we wouldn't think about bribery being a good thing. That's so obviously unjust that we immediately dismiss it. But that's that's the result of the penetration of uh, of uh, the Torah into the Western uh, political imagination. So um, that's something I want to keep uh, keep focusing on. That uh, these this instruction that Moses is giving is given to the people of God first, and we should be meditating on it and think about how we can apply these in churches and in how the church is governed.